When I was a kid, I went to this thing called sailor camp. And sailor camp was a basketball camp. Mr. Huker's been there. It's kind of like um, the summer RCS basketball camp that I think used to be called Mr. D's basketball camp, right? How many of you ever have been to the RCS basketball camp in town? Raise your hand, raise, all right, a number of you, fantastic. Um, Well, sailor camp was better. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, And one of the things we did at sailor camp was have a three-point contest. You guys do that at at the Mr. D's? No, Uh, Mr. D couldn't think of that. But um, (laughs) you didn't didn't have a three-point line back then. He says, okay, so we would have this three-point contest. And um, I, I didn't, like, practice basketball a ton, so I'm going to kind of set myself, and it sounds like I'm bragging, but in a second you'll see that's really not. So we have this three-point contest, and sometimes you're just feeling it. You know what I mean? Sometimes you're just feeling it, and, like, you're confident, and the rim, like Michael Jordan said, you know, just feels like a garbage can. And I, that was where I was, okay? I was feeling it. The rim felt like a garbage can. I, mean, I couldn't miss it was just like draining things, right? Um, and it just it felt so good to just be making everything. So I won the Sailor Camp three-point contest. I won it. And my coach said, you know, you got some real skill at shooting. Um, you know, in order to do that consistently, I want you to shoot 200 times a day throughout the summer. 200 shots a day. I was like, okay. And then summer came, and we had a hoop that lowered. You know what I mean? It was one that, like, you could put it down to seven feet. Oh, we never had it at ten feet, because that was no fun. Um, because I had, like, a 12-inch vertical. We could barely get off the ground. But to put it down to seven and a half feet and use a little ball and dunk was a blast. Uh, so I didn't shoot 200 times a day. I didn't really shoot at all. I just dunked all over my cousins and my brother, and it was a riot. Uh, so something happened when it came time to like the regular season. I wasn't a great shooter. My freshman year from the free throw line, I shot 80%. 80% from the free throw line. My sophomore year, I shot 70-something percent. And then junior year, when I was riding a lot of pine, I was, the, I was on the team. You guys, this was so embarrassing. I hated it. It was so humiliating. The last 30 seconds of games that we were winning by a lot, the coach would be like, all right, in-house, you guys get in. Please don't put us in. We felt like, we felt like little pu- puppets or you know, little like pets that were like, okay. And the crowd would go crazy because like, here were the scrubs, right? And my junior year, I was a scrub, scrub a dub, dub on the end of the bench. My senior year, I started, but then was quickly replaced by a guy who was playing AAU, which is like a a league outside of the league. And I quickly became like a sixth man, and then kind of like a seventh man. And then I was still like a part of it, but um, that potential, the Sailor Camp three-point victory, Never got lived out. I was never a great shooter. Probably averaged my senior year, I don't know, three points a game or something. 
And I just kind of like drifted, you know? It wasn't intentional. I wasn't focused about my b-ball game, though I did for a season buy those strength shoes. You remember those shoes with like platforms on them? And I thought that was going to help me dunk, but it didn't. It didn't. I still couldn't dunk. So it kind of meandered in basketball. It wasn't like a real intentional process that I pursued. My coach gave me something pretty simple, 200 shots a day. Nah, I think I'd rather dunk at seven and a half feet. And so I drifted. Now, imagine um, you're talking to somebody. Let's say that person is uh, Jared Lale, who some of you know. Jared Lale just set the Humboldt State record for clinging. You know what clinging is? I think it's you take a weight and you throw it right here. And then do you have to throw it up? No, you don't have to throw it up. You just get it to your chest, right? Right like that. He set the Humboldt State record. And what happened was one morning he just woke up and he's like, I'm going to try to set the record today. And he just did it. And he set it, right? Not at all. Jared, since he's like 14, has been like, I am going to lift weights. That is what I'm going to do so I can get strong and be a football player and crush people who are smaller than I am in the name of Jesus. (laughs) And it's like every day, couple hours a day. He's in that weight room. And he's clinging. And he sets this record because there's an intentional process that he's going through. Now, what I want you to understand is um, these things are kind of like, they're not terribly important, right? Basketball, how, what, where was that a team? Setting a clinging record. How important is who you become to you? How important is the shape of your life to you? So many of us, when it comes to things like spiritual growth and spiritual transformation, are kind of just like drifting. Yeah, I do a little church once in a while, and occasionally I'll read my Bible or watch something on the History Channel about Jesus, maybe. Maybe I'm even in like a little bit of a small group or something, but so few of us have an intentional plan for how to grow in our relationship with God. And here's the reality about change. We never drift into life change. We cannot, we do not drift into life change. All right, just got to see if it works. We're not transformed into the person of Jesus Christ accidentally. We may encounter, we may encounter kind of life-changing environments accidentally, but change, transformation, breakthrough in our relationship with God comes about through a very intentional process. Turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 31. I just want you to real, really quick see something. Jesus takes the disciples and he tells them, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to take a trip. And everything is written about the prophets and the Son of God is going to be fulfilled. 
He, the Son of God, will be handed over to the Gentiles, and they'll mock him, insult him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. And look at what it says about the disciples. They did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Okay? This is a theme throughout the book of Luke. The motif is one of vision and sight. And seeing is synonymous with being a spiritually aware person. Seeing is synonymous with being somebody who's in tune with what God is doing in the world. It means the same thing. And so the disciples, what? Don't see. They don't see. It's blind. They're blind to God's purpose as he describes it about the trip that they're going to take to Jerusalem. Now, how many of you love movies? I do too. Um, One of the genres of movie that I had the privilege of studying in seminary, yes, we studied movies at Fuller. It was amazing. It's something called the road movie. And a road movie uh, is a movie that happens predominantly, you want to guess where? On the road, yes. And so a road film uh, is about like a journey, okay? It's about a trip that, that a group of people are taking. You can probably think of some road films uh, as you're sitting there. A few that we watched in our class were the one with um, Peter Fonda when he's on a motorcycle. What was that called again? Easy Rider. Yes, we watched Easy Rider. And now you're not going to think about anything else if you're of that era because you're just going to be thinking about Peter Fonda on a motorcycle. Um, We also watched Grapes of Wrath, right? These are road films. They're films where uh, along the way, people go through this process of transformation. That's what's happening in this text. Jesus says, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And on the road, along the way, you're going to experience some life change. He's going to highlight some things for the disciples. Okay, here's one of the first lessons that they encounter. They're going in, verse 35, to Jericho. Now, a couple things about Jericho. Um, Jericho is on the fringe, right? Where are they going? Say Jerusalem. Jerusalem, great, great, great. Yeah, they're going to Jerusalem. Um, Jericho is not Jerusalem. It's outside of Jerusalem, um, and it is kind of like if you said you were going to L.A., Jericho would be like Palm Springs, all right, it's kind of like fringe. It's on the outside. Um, it's a place where a lot of tax collectors hang out. It's like, hey, what are you going to do for the weekend? I don't know. I think I'm going to go hang out in Jericho. Okay, it's like resort town. This is Jericho. Jericho is not Jerusalem. And so the fringe outside the center is often, biblically, where change occurs. Now, why is this important? Well, for you and I, as we consider our lives... And consider how God is bringing about change. We might consider what we think of as the fringe. Because I don't know about you, but I want to be where God is at work. Amen? And if he's working on the outskirts, on the outsides of culture, of society, among people who are kind of, you know, not mainstream, uh, I want to be there. I want to be where he's at. Second, before we read the rest of this, um, in verse 35, it says, Jesus approached Jericho and there was a blind man sitting by the roadside, begging. Uh, now, to be blind in this culture, first century uh, Israel, was synonymous uh, with being cast out. 
You're outside of the social order, what's acceptable. You're unclean. And if you're unclean, you can't be touched. If you're unclean, you're outside of sort of like the economic source of strength. You're outside of the relational um, community that you're a part of. You're isolated. You're cut off. It's important for us to understand that it's in that exact place, this lonely person who's been cut off and isolated, it's in that exact place that God is going to break in and do something extraordinary. Okay? Uh, Continue reading with me. Verse 36. So there's a blind man, and he's sitting there, and he's desperate, right? He's desperate because um, he's got no other shot. He's got nothing else to stand on. Every day he goes to the same place outside of the city. Not only is he on the fringe of, he's not in Jerusalem, he's on the fringe of Jericho. He's not a part of the center. And so his only hope is that other people take care of him. He's desperate. He's desperate. And so a few ingredients that we can kind of pick up from this story for life change. Uh, Number one, when he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what was happening. When he heard the crowd go by, he inquired. Um, And so the first thing in terms of life chains and transformation and us having experiencing a breakthrough in our relationship with God is that we're open to it. (laughs) We, We have to be open to God moving in our lives in order for God to move in our lives. You know, there's uh, somebody who said, we see in the world, what we want to see. We see what we want to see. Jesus says it a little differently. He says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock on the door, it will be open to you. And so my question for you just this morning as you consider your life and where you're at, are you open to the Holy Spirit? Are you open to change? So often, what I find myself doing is, is resisting by doing a couple of different things. Number one, I blame other people for my lack of change. I blame other people. How easy is it to blame the pastor? I'm not saying don't blame me. You can. But how easy is not it to blame somebody else for our lack of growth, for our lack of change? This guy sitting by the road, is, is open to change. He inquires. One, one of the fundamental things necessary for spiritual growth is a sense of curiosity. You want to understand how to grow. You're curious about it. You're willing to inquire. Somebody who maybe has something that you don't, a maturity that you don't, hey, how did you get to where you're at? So we inquire about it. One of my favorite phrases um, that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous is the idea that uh, the step of taking an honest look at our life. Taking an honest look at your life. Have you ever had something that kind of wakes you up? Like some, an experience that happens and it makes you look at your life a little differently? It makes you stop and consider, maybe it was like near death or maybe it was just abundant blessing that you experienced and you're like, why? Why? How, why did this happen? I love the idea that when you and I pause and be curious and are open to change, that God has the opportunity to come and meet us. 
Second thing, verse, next verse, 37. They told him, the crowd, that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And verse 38, the man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now notice what the crowd says, who they say Jesus is. Jesus who? This is Jesus of Nazareth, right? They paint Jesus into a corner and say, hey, this is the guy from Nazareth. It's the rabbi, it's the teacher. But the blind man kind of goes, no, 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 there's, there's, there's something else happening here. He names him the son of David, which is the Messiah, one who comes from royal blood. He sees in Jesus not just a rabbi or a teacher. He sees in him the person who has the ability to touch his life so that he might be transformed. He's open. And the second thing he does is he calls out. He seeks help. Sometimes you and I are open to change. We're willing to change. But it's this next step that we often fail at. It's this next piece that we often stop short of. When's the last time you asked somebody who was maybe a little bit ahead of you for help? When was the last time you sought help for your spiritual growth? Hey, um, I got this thing that I've been carrying for like days or weeks or months. And, uh, and I need help. And maybe it's a friend, but maybe you just cry out to God. You ever cried out to God? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I'll be honest with you. Um, this past week, God confronted some stuff in my life that was pretty significant. It was a barrier to him breaking through. You know what it was? It was pride. It was pride. I can live without him. I can conjure up enough good ideas. I can come up with enough plans on my own. God, I don't even know that I need you. Instead of leading or having him lead me, I was inviting him to come follow me. Instead of saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I said, Jesus, will you follow me into this? And so if you and I are going to experience transformation and change, we got to be willing to call out for help. We have to actively seek out help. This might mean calling a friend. This might mean spending time in prayer and confession. I watched this week 200 plus middle school students on their knees in confession before God. On their knees confessing their sin before him. And so part of transformation is acknowledging we need transforming. If it's been a while since your last confession, if it's been a while since you've come before God and said, Lord, have mercy on me, there's a chance you might be living a little bit like a Pharisee. In the story preceding this one, in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus tells a tale of two people that came to the temple to pray. And the first one got up and said, God, thank you that I'm not like everybody else. And the other person beat his breast. And you know what he said? The exact same words that the blind man said. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you and I are going to experience transformation, we have to be open to change. We have to actively seek it out because life change doesn't just occur. We never drift into it. 
Next, verse 39. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Um, There's this beautiful part in this story. This is the part that I just love. Because people are offended by this man's honesty. They're offended by his need. They're offended by how open he is about his dependence on the one who's passing by. They're annoyed by it. Because that's not his place. His place is to sit in the corner and be quiet. His place is to sit there and ask for money. They paint him into this corner. They say, just like Jesus is just the guy from Nazareth, you're just the blind man. And he throws himself into this posture and this place of vulnerability. Now, what is vulnerability? Well, I heard this therapist say that vulnerability is embracing uncertainty. It's embracing the uncertain. He calls out once. And that takes an incredible amount of courage. But then the crowd tries to stifle him. And instead of sort of like shrinking back into his hole, he calls out again. I think there are a lot of us in here, a lot of us in here, who have called on the name of Jesus before in our lives. And because of something that occurred, maybe we we called out and we felt like it fell on deaf ears. Or we called out and we were disappointed with how things turned out when we we sought to follow him. We called out and we, we listened and we obeyed and something happened and we were just like, ah, we felt like we got burned. And I think there's a lot of us in here that feel like before we've gotten burned before. We've gotten burned in our relationship with God. We called out on his name. We sought help actively and nothing happened. We, we stayed the same. Our situation didn't get better. And we're right in this space. The voice is sort of telling us, just be quiet and go back in the corner. We've become a little bit cynical, a little more jaded, a little less open, because we did call out. And nothing happened. Now, this place of vulnerability is a terrible place to be. (laughs) Because when you're vulnerable, you're exposed It's a challenging place to be when you and I confess our need for someone outside of us to help us. When you and I confess our need for something other than us to save us. And I love this man's sense of urgency and his unwillingness to relent. Notice what the disciples did in the previous passage. They asked a question one time in verse 31. Uh, They did not understand any of this. You know what it doesn't say? So they inquired about it. They kept bugging Jesus until he told them. Just said they were okay with not knowing. And this man, because of his desperate place, is not okay with not knowing. He's not okay with there not being an answer. And so he does something really heroic. He breaks through the cacophony of voices to hear the voice of God. In order to experience life change, you and I have to break through all those voices, the terrible voices of fear, 
of insecurity, of self-doubt. The voice that says, no, 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 not you. No, 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 no. You are not enough. No, not you. This, this, this is somebody else's thing. This isn't your thing. Life changes for them. Life changes for the person whose book you just read. Life change isn't for you. In order to experience life change, in order to experience breakthrough, there will always be a moment where we have to overcome the voices that tell us to get back in the corner where you belong. If you say and call out and open yourself to the movement of God in the world and you call out for help and you say, Lord, have mercy on me and you take that step of of vulnerability into relationship with him and you expose your weakness, I promise you, I promise you, there will be voices in your head or a, a sense of fear that creeps in and says, wow, this is a little bit scary. I'm not sure this is really what I want. The crowd says to him, be quiet. The crowd says to you and to me, be quiet. There is an enemy of God who wants to stifle, who wants to suffocate your faith. There is one opposed to God who does not want you calling out, Lord, have mercy on us. He wants you to be quiet and go beg and go return to that place where you were isolated and cut off. He wants you to go back to that place where you felt lonely and rejected. He wants you to go to that place where where you couldn't receive the touch and the embrace and the love of the community. He wants you to sit there because there, you're no threat to him. There, There's no life change occurring. There's no honor or glory being given to God. You know how much glory God gets when we stay in the corner? None. He gets no glory. That's that's what we've said for centuries in this community, that we exist to honor and to give glory to God. You know how much glory God gets when you and I sort of like, Listen to the voices, the fear, the insecurity, the self-doubt. And so this man who, it's really not a story about a blind man. It's really a story about a man who can see. This is, this is a, a horrible misnomer. A blind beggar receives his sight. It should be really titled something like, uh, A Story About a Man Who Could See. This is not a story about someone who doesn't understand how God is at work in the world. It's about somebody who gets it deeply in his bones. And the last thing that I just want to highlight, verse 40, Jesus stopped. He ordered the man to be brought to him. He ordered the man to be brought to him. Isn't that beautiful? God honors this. God honors his tenacity. God honors his unwillingness to relent. God honors his need for mercy. God honors his humility. God honors his confession. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. God says, come close. Come here. And when he came near, Jesus asked him this amazing question I've been wrestling with all week. What is do you want me to do for you? 
What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question this morning? When you came through the doors, what was it that you wanted God to do for you? Now, I'm not saying like God wants you to say, well, Lord, I'd really like a pony. If you could like conjure me up a pony, that would be really nice. Lord, what do you want me to do for you? He's asking. What do you want me to do for you so that I might get glory? What do you want me to do for you that requires faith? What is it that you would like to see me do in this world? Pete and Laura prayed, God, send us, send us workers for the harvest. We pray for the children as they leave. Lord, would you reveal yourself to them as they study? This morning, our team sat around right here, our worship team, and we prayed, Lord, would you break through our apathy? Would you break through our self-reliance? Would you break through our blindness that we might see you, that we might encounter you in all your glory and all your love, that we might share that with the world? What is it that you want God to do for you? This morning, he's asking you, what is it? What is it that you want me to be a part of? What is it that you want to change? Where in your life, where in your friends' lives, where in your community do you want to engage in a way that gives me honor and glory? Because look what the final thing is. Verse 41, Lord, he says, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and he followed Jesus praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. When we engage openly, when we actively seek help, when we choose vulnerability in that place. And when we listen to the voice above the voices, we experience breakthrough in powerful ways. We experience the presence of God in beautiful ways. When we lay down our strength and instead pick up weakness, when we embrace the humble places on the fringe, we gain a testimony. And we enter this place where we can then praise God where we can worship, where we can celebrate, where we can, like the crowd, gather around and goes, no, I know that guy. <laughs> I know him. He's the guy at the gates, but um, he's, he's different now. Something happened in him, and, and I can't deny it. And he's saying it's God. And so maybe, just maybe, I'll, I'll give God a chance too. One of the things that's incredibly challenging in a culture where we're very successful people, we can do things on our own. Um, I, I love this congregation, and it is filled with amazing people who are really successful. They're great parents, they're, they're successful professionally, they're successful relationally. They're thoughtful. And one of the things that can happen is we can come to rely on ourselves. The reality is, none of us drift into transformation. We don't drift into life change. It occurs as we're open to what God is doing in the world. We seek help and seek his presence and cry out in confession, Lord, have mercy on me. 
I need more of your presence in my life. I need more of you in my life. Come, come, I want to see. Lord, help me see where you're at work in the world. Open my eyes to understand you. Lord, break through in my life that others might worship you, that others might praise you. And I will be at the front of the line. I'll be at the very front singing your praises for what you've done in my life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we invite you again. You're a God who breaks through. You break through our apathy. You break through and heal our pain. You break through and you give us sight when we could not see. Lord, this morning I pray for perspective. I pray that you would compel us, help us understand that we don't drift into life change, that life change occurs when we throw ourselves at your feet and say, here we are, God. Have mercy on us, your people. Lord, we bless you for the work that you're doing in us. We pray that you would continue to do a mighty work through us as we lead the pack in celebrating what you've done and what you will continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen.